Linda wants me to go back farther. She doesn't want me to be so close. That's not a good sign, is it? <laughs> she said, back, back. I do this because to, uh, one, one thing is just to show you something. I've, I've been working with, actually I've been looking into the seven churches. And uh, I, I, I got into ministry because of Revelation, and uh, and and I, I did it because of Revelation uh, seminars. And I wasn't I was just a, in the church and and a lay person that really loved the church. And the pastor came and said, "Would you like to do Revelation seminars?" And he didn't like being up front, and, he, and I like being up front, but I didn't like the detail of trying to plan. So he liked to plan. He liked to do that kind of thing. So uh, that's how I got started. No, you do it for all of those nights. You really don't get in. You kind of go back and forth, and you're and you're trying to just get. The revelation is the one that attracts. And so I kind of did that surface thing too, but really, I don't even know what, what kind of got me triggered on this. I noticed in the Sabbath school lesson today that Ellen White says that there's a need for us to look at Daniel and Revelation uh, more so now than ever. And if you really look into into Revelation, uh big word, but it means in time, which makes sense that that would be the book we would want to look at. And other kind of stuff, and this kind of scares them, Revelation kind of scares them because it kind of does away with the new covenant stuff. And as I've been preaching this, people have been coming to me and they said, you know, as a child, Revelation was the scariest book when people preach that that uh, I'd ever had, and, and, and I thought to myself, well, there's some scary stuff in, in the book of Revelation. But it's the first part of Revelation. When I got into the seven churches, though, and this is why I want to share this with you, is I, number one, Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And as we talked in our Sabbath school lesson, we, basically, you know, we said to ourselves, well, it's, all, it's about Jesus. Well, the question is, I've got to be able to define who this Jesus is. And Revelation does that. I mean, it kind of, the beauty of the book is right away at the beginning, it gives us a picture of Jesus. And he actually writes. Himself says, I'm going to send to these people. And what's nice about it is, is in these churches, he presents himself differently at the beginning of every church. Seven different times he gives a description of who he is. And, and, it's, and it's beautiful because one thing as you get into, and I think it's perfect that it's at the beginning of the book of Revelation, because what you get into is one of the things that scares me about end time, and I've heard this ever since I was a little guy going to, going to all the meetings and stuff, was that the thought that Jesus is going to leave us. That the, that, that the spirit, you know, you'll have to be on your own. It'll get so bad, you'll be on your own kind of thing. And that's really bothered me through the years. You know, it's kind of like, well, would Jesus really, when, when, when things are getting that bad and I can barely hang on, is he, is he really going to leave me? And uh, it's the great controversy thing that Ellen White talks about is how in the time of the end, the angels really play an important part. That angels are just all over the place. You know, I mean, it's just, and, 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 and so that tells me that I don't think he's really leaving me. And then, then the other part is, when you look at the seven churches, he says he's in the midst of them. He's there. He doesn't separate himself and say, well, the church is over here and I'm over here. He puts himself right in the midst of the light. You see him walking in with the seven churches. Now, the, now the interesting thing about this, this is messages for his people. These are people that believe in him. And so when you read these letters, they're just powerful because, because they're, they're actually, one, you find out what he hates. I mean, he tells you right away, I don't like this stuff. 
I don't like what's going on. I hate it, he says. And, and, and like, oh, I guess that Jesus doesn't like that kind of stuff. And then he says what he likes. And, and if the, one of the beginning of the church is he basically says, oh, I like your hard work. I like that you're, you're, you, you are, you're persistent and consistent and you're faithful. And I like all those kind of things. So, you know, sometimes we kind of think he doesn't pay any attention to what we're doing. But he actually does. And he likes it. He likes it when we're faithful. I wanted to uh, look at Pergamos because I don't know how many of your friends, but I've had lots of friends who believed, and we've been given counsel on this too, so I don't want uh, to sound, I guess, derogatory towards them. I, I want to make sure that, that when I'm talking about this, I think if they had the ability, they're following the counsel. And the counsel was to flee evil. Other people that went even farther, you know, out into the, up into other, you know, regions of uh, Wyoming and different places like that. And I think we've been given counsel that you're probably in a better position if you can do that. I think, I think, you know, you don't want to immerse yourself where evil is. You don't, if you, if you can. But what if you can't do that? What if you don't have that opportunity? What if, uh, what if the, in some way or another you have, uh, you know, you just don't have the means and you're, and you're immersed. Well, this, this book, this letter is for us. This letter is about... So Pergamos, I just want to show you here. This is kind of a map that just shows that the seven churches... Now, one, one thing I love about the Bible, there's a lot of holy books. If you read them, you can't tell where, 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 the, where they're talking about. The, the places don't exist for one thing. They're names that are, that are, you know, made up. They don't have any actual... But I love the Bible because the Bible, you can actually find the places it's talking about. The seven churches aren't made up. They're, they're, they're churches that you can still take the tour of today. Places that you can still take the tour of. We know where those places are. They're not actually in the Middle East, by the way. They're a little farther north. Asia Minor, Turkey... You know, in, in that area. And you see the Isle of Patmos is down below. That's where John is when he's writing. He's getting this vision and he's writing these letters. Uh, so he's very close to the seven churches. And you'll see that the first church is on the coast and Smyrna and Pergamon is right, is, is the third church up there. And today, Pergamum actually is, how, let's see if I can put this, it is the oldest city continually inhabited in the world. Now, one of the things they did about ancient cities is they had a way of, if they conquered your city, they would, they would wipe your city out, and they'd build on top of it. But Pergamos, even today, has lots of, of vacationers and visitors that come because it's such a beautiful place. And, and you can see it's along the coast. It's up, it's up high. has some great views from where that is. But it actually has always been a beautiful place. It is the one place... The one city that basically the government said, we're going to make this a metropolis. And they put a lot of money into this place, building buildings. It is the center of medicine. It is the place where doctors went to learn how to do medicine. And this is one of the temples of, of the god of medicine. This actually is in the Berlin Museum, but it, it kind of, they piece it all together and put it there. And, and you can see just by looking at it, what a grand place it must have been. I, when I think of these ancient cities, and I don't know what you think of ancient people, but sometimes I think we think ancient people were kind of behind us kind of thing. But I'm almost thinking that some of these cities, that if you were to visit it, even, even today in its glory, it would still outrank anything, you, any city in the world that you could go to today. It would still be one of those kind of places that would be just, you know, they poured all kinds of money into it and made that happen. The, the god was Asclepius. He was a hero and the god of medicine and ancient Greek religion and mythology. And he represents the healing aspects of the arts. And actually, the, 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 the little emblem you have here, this is the army's emblem for uh, medicine, but it's the one that we have today, comes from this Greek god. Now, what, what I find fascinating about this, though, is if you go to the book of Numbers, and now this city actually takes us to the book of Numbers. Because one of the things that you find in the book of Revelation 
And people say, well, we want, we want, you know, just the New Testament, we want New Covenant. But when you come into Revelation, Revelation tells you it doesn't stand alone. It stands from the stories in the Old Testament. And the stories in the Old Testament tell us and help explain for us why we're in the time we're in. And so he, he brings back those kind of things. And so in, in Numbers, you have the serpents, remember? And Moses holds up the rod and be saved if you see it. It's right there too in Numbers. So it's interesting that this God was a God of healing. But we're directed back to the true God of healing from this place. Now, if we look at this, the angel... Jesus describes himself in this book as the one with the two-edged sword. I mean, I, I, I don't know how, how many of you, we talk about Veterans Day and how swords, you know, they've been, they've been a, an important part. I mean, the Marines held on to the sword thing for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Swords were, swords, even though, they, even though guns had been invented and everything, the sword still is that symbol somehow of, 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 of commanding power. You know, the leader, the one, the one who's going to charge into the battle. And that's really what Jesus is describing him, himself here, is this is like in the midst of the battle. This is where evil has got the worst as it could be. Evil's really bad here. I mean, this is a place where, where it's described as being the throne of Satan. That's what Jesus Christ. I know where you people are. I know where you're living. And, and he says, I, I can, I, I'm the God, I'm Jesus, I have the two-edged sword. It, it, it cuts both ways. One, it protects and it defends. And it fights. It fights evil. And it goes through the He comes across as, as, don't worry, I'm there. I'm with you. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. See, he likes that. He likes the fact that we do not deny the faith. That's important to Jesus. That somehow in the process, we can be people that persevere. That no matter how bad it looks... No matter how we don't understand what it is, if we trust in Jesus, that's something he really appreciates. Even when evil is all around us. And Antipas was a martyr who basically was killed, not necessarily by the government, but he was, he was kind of killed by some uh, rebels that were in the town. And, and, and I don't know, maybe the government basically turned the, the attention away from them, and that was the story that they give. Uh, but he says, this is, this is, he was killed, he was faithful, and he was there where Satan dwells. This is where Satan dwells. This is the throne room of Satan. You're in the midst of evil here in Pergamos. And how's, how's Jesus? So the interesting thing about this, Jesus doesn't say, I want you to flee the place. I don't want you to get out of there. He says, I recognize your faithfulness in the midst of evil. How many of you ever lived in an evil place? If, if you were to think of the throne of Satan... If you were to think of a place today, in modern terms, what would be the throne of Satan? Las Vegas. <laughs> James came right, right away. Las Vegas, he says. <laughs> That'd be the throne of Satan. That's where Satan dwells for sure, you know, is in Las Vegas. I grew up in Las Vegas as a teenager. I would not recommend that you have your teenagers grow up in Las Vegas. I just, just so you know, it was not a good experience uh, and the interesting thing about Las Vegas, too, though, is they have a nice church there. We built a, we built a really nice church there. We, I went to church school there. That's the first time I went to church school was in, at Las Vegas Junior Academy. It's still there today. The church is still there today. The, the, the academy is still doing well. Uh, but I always got picked on when I went to camp just because I lived in Las Vegas. You know, I, it, it's interesting that there's good, faithful people that live in the midst of where Satan is, but even God's faithful people don't recognize them as being good people. Just because where they live, you know, the idea. And now, the, the, the strange thing about this is when I lived in Ohio, and I, told, I, lived, I went to public school, and I told my teacher I was moving to Las Vegas, she thought that was great. 
I'm just a little guy. I'm, you know, and, and says, you're moving to Las Vegas. Oh, that's a great place. I'm, that's great. I was like, really? That's like, I didn't realize I was getting, she was all excited about me moving to Las Vegas. No, oh, that'd be the great place to live. So it's kind of, it's kind of a mindset in terms of how we view things, you know, how we look at things. Uh, it, it's just, there's so many temptations there and there's so many things there that's probably difficult in order to make that happen. But what I like about this is that even if you're in the midst of evil, God does not give up on you. I mean, he even says that in, in the message and in, in, in the, in the works there. He says, I'm not going to give, I'm not going to give up on you. I, I want you to, I want you to do it. But he says, I have, I have something against you. Now, this church is called the compromising church. That's, that's what I have right here in mind, the compromising church. And I always try to figure out, well, what was the compromise? You know, because he says, you know, oh, you guys, you're faithful. You had a faithful guy there. He's a martyr. But then verse 14 says, But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to, and to commit sexual immorality. Now, this is one thing that always sticks out for me in terms of these churches, because this is actually, this comes up quite often. And I almost think that we kind of overlook it in relationship to the churches because of these two things. One is we don't, we think we don't offer anything to idols and there's no sexual immorality anywhere. That's in Las Vegas, you know, right? Although, what do you hear now? What's in the news right now about Hollywood? Even the world, which, which, did, did I ever turn this on? Even the world. What do you guys think Hollywood was, have, has been doing all these years? I mean, who thinks that the people in Hollywood are the, are the pure white robe people? Anybody? I mean, does it shock you? That we're seeing things come out of Hollywood that basically says, you know, there's sexual immorality that 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 bring us our entertainment does that shock us now it's interesting that that is the issue that comes up here that god is god is directing towards his people so i thought to myself wait a minute he's taking me back to the book of numbers and if you look at numbers chapter 22 balak sends for balaam in Numbers chapter 22, it says that then the children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of the Jordan across from Jericho. Remember Jericho? They marched around seven times. And he says they, they, they camped across there. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. King, this pagan king, he's scared to death of the Israelites. And all his people are afraid of them. They're in this, this fortified city. But he sees them out there on this plain. Now, what would you do in that case? He had to it to be. He doesn't say, well, I'm going to get all my armies together and I'm going to march out among them. He comes up with this idea. He says, hey, can I find a prophet somewhere? Can I find a prophet that will give a curse on them? That will place a curse on them? Now, when you, when you look at this and you think about it, you have to say to yourself, and we've seen this, right? You read this in the bedtime stories to your children. Because we think of Balaam as which one? So Balak finds Balaam and he sends him all these riches. And he says, all I want you to do, all I want you to do, it's very simple. All you got to do is go up above the Israelites and curse them. And I'm going to give you all this stuff. Now, it must have been pretty impressive what he had there. Because it was quite a temptation. Yeah, he's like, huh, let's see now. Let's see if I can figure out a way. I mean, I'm, Balaam in his heart is trying to think, wow, 
Maybe they deserve to be cursed. Maybe I can give them a curse. Maybe I can do that. And so, eventually, he goes. You know, now, there's this back and forth stuff with Balaam. Because he's saying, no, I can't go. You know, I can't do it. There, there's this whole thing beforehand. He said, even if, you, even if Balak gives me his whole house filled with gold and silver, I can't do this. So the guys go back. They go to Balak again. Balak don't go back to him again. And they go back to him again. Balaam. And I read this, and I wonder to myself, I think Balaam actually went to the Lord and said, hey, can I at least check this out? Can I at least check this out? And so he finally goes. And that is the story where what happens? Remember the donkey? What's the donkey do? Now, you know, do you guys think this story actually happened? Or do you think it's just like one of those fairy tales from Disney? I believe this story actually happened. I want you to know that because there's lots of people when they look at these stories in the Old Testament, they think they're just spiritualized stories that are, that are kind of made up for the mythical part of, of, of this. I, I believe this actually happened. Have you, do you remember another kind of conversion road experience that somebody had? It was Paul, wasn't it? Damascus Road. This is, this is before that. You know, and, and, and when you read the story, you have, to, you have to say to yourself, if you go over to, to 2222, Numbers 2220, God's anger was aroused because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. And he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. Now the donkey, the donkey saw what? The angel... Of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. So Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back on the road. Don't you love how God works? I mean, are you seeing it? The donkey sees angels. He's not looking. His mind is... I'm going to figure out somehow to get that money from Balaam. The farther I get away from him is trying to figure out what angels are. But the donkey sees the angel. And the angel is holding what? God. A sword. Angels are holding Just like it says in Pergamos, I am the one who holds the wedge sword. I have the sword. It says God was angry with that he went and he put a stumbling block in the way and he basically said, stop, don't go anymore. Now, the hope that I find in this story, don't ever give up on God. That's really what the, what the story ends up being. No matter what people tell you, no matter what they say, oh, evil's all over the place, it's really bad. Yeah, God knows that. But he has angels with so And if, if Balaam was actually paying attention to what God wanted, he would have turned that donkey around right there. Have you ever thought about maybe animals seeing things we don't see? That maybe in some... I mean, I know it sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? When you, when you think about it, you say to yourself, well, you know, I'm going to pay attention to donkey. He actually beats the donkey. Bomb! Oh! Because I'm going. There about i have a running joke about mules because mules are strange nobody really knows where they come from i keep i keep saying what how, how, how do you get a mule think about that but mules are actually smarter than horses when it comes to trail riding mules will not go to a place where they think it's dangerous horses will but mules, and that's why everybody says stubborn is a mule. There may be a reason why the mule is stubborn. But what's interesting is we don't think they know what they're doing. And yet God will even bring animals to give us direction. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't happen the first time. 
He basically said, Now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing away with his drawn sword in his hand. The donkey turned. So Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back onto the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. The angel of the Lord went further and stood in a a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused and he struck the donkey with his staff. See, I, I want you to know that God does not give up on us. It isn't just one time. The angel says, I, I'm going to make it so that you can't go right or left. I, I, it's going to be obvious that you need to stop. And he continues. I want, I want the, that's the message that I'm getting from the seven angels, is that even in the time of trouble, in the, in, in the middle of the, of the worst kind of trouble there is, his angels are there. And the question is, are we going to be paying attention to what his angels are doing? Or are we going to be beating the messenger? But that isn't the end of the story. This is the part where I wonder if you really believed it happened. Because when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down, he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you? That you have struck me these three times. And Balaam has a conversation with the donkey. Can you imagine? Now I've, I've, I've milked cows. I've had conversations with cows. I mean, it's, I, I kind of understand how this, this thing kind of works. Now I never actually had a cow talk to me. But if, but if a cow actually did talk to me, I might want to pay attention to what that cow said. You know? And that's what happens here with this donkey. And Balaam's like, okay, I'll tell you what the deal is. He says, he said, what, what have I done to you? And Balaam said to the donkey, because you've abused me, I wish there were a sword in my hand, for now I would do what? I would kill you. <laughs> you're, you're saying this to a donkey that talks. I'm going to kill you. You know, I, wait a minute. You realize the donkey is talking. <laughs> yeah, a question. Why are you doing this to me? And he's so angry. He's like, I'll tell you, if you, if you wouldn't quit abusing me, I would, and I had a sword right now, you'd be a dead donkey. Even, you know, it's like, I love these stories. Who knew this stuff was in the Old Testament? You know, everybody wants to do either do away, either keep the New Testament and throw away the Old Testament. But what Revelation, when Jesus is writing his letter, he sends us right to this story. He sends, it to, he sends it in the letter to people that are in the midst of evil, that are living in the throne of Satan, where Satan dwells. He gives them this story. He says, pay attention to this story. And what Jesus wants us to know, that no matter how bad it gets, he does not give up on us. He'll send the angel a little farther. He'll send the angel a little farther. He'll send the angel a little farther. And then if that's not enough, he'll have the donkey talking to you. So the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? And he says, No. And the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. And the angel asked, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to stand against you, because your way is perverse before me. We can be deceived. We can be perverse, but God still sends a way to let us know what our condition is. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, I love, I love this picture of, of God because basically, why, the angel's got a sword. Why not just cut Balaam's head off? End it right there. Be done with the program. He's not going any farther. 
but he works with us. Even in, the, even in the midst of our ugliness, even in the midst of our own deceptive concepts and our perverse ways, he just points out to us. He says, you know you're going down a perverse path here. And I'm here to stop you. No matter what it takes, I will stop you from going any further, from, from going into destruction. I will have the donkey talk to you if you ain't going to listen to anybody else. And the donkey even says, what have I done to you? Do you realize that he's on his way to curse God's people? And the donkey is right when he says, what have I done to you that you would want to curse me? What have I done? I think that's the message that we need to ask ourselves as well, you know, to say to ourselves, what has, what has, what has Jesus done to us? Nothing but good. Now, when you go into the story... And, I, and I'm wondering, when, when, uh, when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, how many times is he tempted? Three. Now, when you look at this story of Balaam and Balak, finally he comes around and he says, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'll do it, I'll do it. And Balaam and Balak get out there, and the, and the first place that Balak takes Balaam is right in the, in the center of Israel, where you can see all their glory. And he says, now I want you to curse them. And he says, okay, set up all these altars here and set up all the, all the sacrifices. We got it all lined up up here. And you see all the beauty. Now go ahead and curse them. And when you look at the story, I, and, I, and we don't have enough time to look at it today, but I love the, uh, just, the, just the idea that basically says, what God has blessed, no one can curse. And, and so, so he, go, he goes, he says, okay, Lord, can I, can I curse these people? And, and uh, so, so Balaam coming back, he's, oh, finally, I'm getting my chance. This prophet's going to curse him. And he, and he gives this whole big blessing. I mean, he just goes on, you know, Balak, the king of Moab, has brought me from Aram. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the rocks I see him, from the hills I behold him, there a people dwelling alone, not reckoning itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number one-fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like his. And Balak says to Balaam, what have you done to me? (laughs) You know, you got this, this, this Moabite king. What have you done to me? You just put another blessing on these people. And to me, that's the beauty of the message. We're in the midst of evil, we're in the midst of purpose, and we're on the, we're at the throne of Satan. The, the, the message is that nobody can curse what God blessed. And when God blesses, you can't even count them. Because there's so much, there, it's like, there is. And to me, that's the message, even when the, even when the ugliness gets so bad that really it doesn't change this story a bit. It is still who God is. Who he blesses, he blesses. And nobody can change. Now, the interesting thing is he does this three times. Three times. He, go, he takes him to another place and it's kind of on the far edge. So he starts out with the big one. And then Balak goes, major part of them you do maybe kind of edge of them just just curse the edge of them and and i really appreciate that because how many of us are going to be like elijah in the time of the end and we're going to think we're the only ones maybe we're in the big group we're all good big church big place wherever that is think oh yeah we, we got strength in numbers but what if we're not in the where what if we're not in the place where all the numbers are what if it's just a few of us just a little bit he goes there and he tries to, to curse him again. He comes back with another, another blessing. And Balaam, what you do to me? And Balaam says, I just can't do it. And then on the third time, he takes him to the wilderness area. I mean, it's like, it's like this has got to be the, the friend. These are my friends in John Day. These are my friends that are way out there in the middle somewhere. You know. Who knows? They don't even know where they're at. And, and, and Balak says, okay, curse those people. Just, just don't do the whole, just do a few of them. Goes and prays again to the Lord. He comes back, he has another blessing. And again, Balaam 
angry. He's like, why do you keep doing this? Balaam says, I can't go against God. You know, it's interesting that, that Jesus himself brings us to this story. When we're in the midst of Satan, we're in the midst of evil. He says three times he tried to curse him, but he didn't. Because what God has blessed, you cannot curse. Do you know what the downfall was of the Israelites? After all of this, after all of this, uh, he didn't even have to curse them. Because the Israelites didn't even appreciate what God had done for them. And saw that the pagan gods they thought were better than the God of Israel. Who had blessed them. That was their downfall. That's why Pergamos is considered the, the compromising church. Because they looked around them and they saw all the glory and all the goodness. And they forgot what it was that God had done for them. It was appropriate for what the donkey said. Have I not been with you since the beginning? Have I been a good donkey to you? Have I ever done anything to you? Did I smash your foot in all those years we've been together? Did I ever turn from you in all those years that we've been together? And to me, that's God speaking to him. Why would you curse me when I have been faithful to you? And faithfulness isn't necessarily what we think it looks like from God's standpoint. It may mean a squish foot. It may mean a donkey going underneath trying to keep us from going on in our perverse way. And it is them connecting with those pagan gods that then got them into the sexual immorality. And I want to say, in terms of the Old Testament and sexual immorality... A lot of it isn't about necessarily what we think it is. It's about being unfaithful to God. So when we talk about, well, that really doesn't apply to me because you know, I'm sexually, you know, whatever we want to put down, or I don't give offerings to God's, really what it comes down to is, am I faithful to the God of our fathers? It's that God brings to me, and am I? For what he has done. Easy. So if you've ever taken a trip with 8th and ninth graders, you will really appreciate this. I love how I, you know, I'll go down to uh, San Francisco. I used to take group 8th, ninth graders down to San Francisco every year. We go to PUC. We go to Ellen White's uh, place. And then we would take them to Alcatraz. Because that's, that's a good thing to do with teenage boys, right? Take them to Alcatraz, you know, <laughs> and, and, and we go to San Francisco. But they'd never catch any of that. Well, instead, they're like, wow, did you see that Ferrari? That's unbelievable. And they would talk for almost two hours about how great that car was. Or, you know, a Tesla. Or, or, you know, wow, did you see that house up there on the hill? You see how great that was? I mean, it's almost like it, we get it. We, we look at this stuff around us, and we think this is the greatest thing there is, and we forget because we think that maybe following God is not such an exciting thing. We think for some reason, if I'm going to be faithful to God, somehow I've got to be a monk and I'm going to be poor. I, you know, I don't know how this works, but I'm telling you that when you're on God's side, you experience more of life than you ever could have imagined you would ever experience. You'll be in the valley of Israel that you can't even be numbered. And you'll have Moabites afraid of you just because they know what kind of God we serve. See, that's the beauty of, of, the, of, the, of the letter of Pergamos is don't give up on God. He will not 
give up on us. Even though Israel became one of the, one of the key factors of this, the message in here, even though we may be perverse and deceptive, there is one thing that's available to each and every one of us. Repentance. I think that's why it's so important that John the Baptist has said, repent and be baptized. Because with repentance comes forgiveness. With repentance comes protection from God. That two, the, I am the one who holds the two-edged sword. Repent, he says. Don't go any farther down the path. Stop in your tracks and recognize me as one who loves you and cares for you and doesn't want to see you destroy yourself. Repent. Or else I am coming to you quickly. And I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Because I will fight. I will do what it takes. I am your warrior God. You know, I, I, uh, I grew up in a military home. And Linda doesn't understand this because every time I go on vacation, I always want to go visit military places. So I went to Nellis Air Force Base. I love San Diego because, man, there's so much military down there. I just get excited. You know, Pendleton's there, the Naval. It's actually the largest naval station in the world is in San Diego, which actually happened because uh, Roosevelt wanted to take his white fleet, and he it was going to, supposed to be in San Francisco. That's where Roosevelt had the idea he was going to put them in San Francisco. But they made a mistake, and they stopped in San Diego. And when they stopped in San Diego, the mayor of San Diego says, wow, we got a great opportunity here. you got to treat these people really good. They treated the Navy so well, they never went on to San Francisco. They, they, I mean, they just, they just treated said, this is a place where the Navy needs to be. And so they, they made that station. And today, San Diego, the number one employer in San Diego is the Navy. If the Navy were it would be pretty be San Diego as we know it. But anyway, I, I, I like this whole kind of idea, you know, uh, I remember I grow, that's my growing up days, my dad leaving all dressed up in his uniform and going out to play war and sometimes leaving for war and all this kind of stuff. And so it's, Linda doesn't get it, but it, she knows if we're going on vacation, we will end up at a military base that will not allow us on there. <laughs> we got in trouble at San Diego because I went down to see where the Navy SEALs train. So it's, and it's really where the Navy SEALs train. There's this, this beautiful hotel right next to it and there's no, fence or anything on the beach so you could go down and and lay in the water as the navy seals do and try it but it's pretty cold but anyway you get up there and i I started to go across and there's there's a there's a guard tower right here where the guy that's his job his job is to make sure nobody strolls down the navy seal beach and i i I I start i just started to walk towards that and all of a sudden he comes out and he looks at me like this Okay, <laughs> wasn't going to argue with him. I went back again and went and went over there again. I mean, I said, "Oh, I can't do it. They just won't let me around this place. You can't, you can't get on." But I love the analogy that basically God says, "I will fight your wars." Isn't that a great thing to know that there is somebody that's willing? Now we appreciate the the, the our our men that have done that, our our, our women and men and, and those people that have served. Because that still says, there's a lot about that when you're saying you're willing to actually put your life out there so that you and I can speak today. We can talk about the, the, the seven churches. We can do that kind of thing. But what about God who says, I will fight for you? Because evil looks like it's pretty overwhelming. It's bigger than what I can handle. And I'm glad to know that God can handle it. And this invitation is for everyone. He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the church is to him who overcomes, to him, I will give some of the hidden manna. There's some manna hidden somewhere. And when we're hungry and it looks like there's nothing left, he's going to bring it out. Or he says, I'm going to give you a white stone. 
a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. I'm going to give you a stone with your name on it. What that tells me is that he knows each and every one of us personally. He knows our name. Nobody else may know our name, but he knows our name. It's for everyone. Pergamos was a a pretty unbelievably evil place, but at the same time a place that you would want to, you'd just be in awe. But it's nothing compared to the awe of being in the presence of God. Here, let him hear.